Chapter Four, Part Two of Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, translated by Kenneth Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The following morning, as he was about to leave the hotel, he looked off from the steps and noticed that Tazio, who was alone and was already on his way towards the sea, was just approaching the private beach. He was half tempted by the simple notion of seizing this opportunity to strike up a casual friendly acquaintanceship with the boy, who had been the unconscious source of so much agitation and upheaval. He wanted to address him, and enjoy the answering look in his eyes. The boy was sauntering along, he could be overtaken, and Aschenbach quickened his pace. He reached him on the boardwalk behind the bathing-houses was about to lay a hand on his head and shoulders, and some word or other, an amiable phrase in French, was on the tip of his tongue. But he felt that his heart, due also perhaps to his rapid stride, was beating like a hammer, and he was so short of breath that his voice would have been tight and trembling. He hesitated, he tried to get himself under control. Suddenly he became afraid that he had been walking too long, so close behind the boy. He was afraid of arousing curiosity and causing him to look back questioningly. He made one more spurt, failed, surrendered, and passed with bowed head. Too late, he thought immediately, too late. Yet was it too late. This step, which he had just been on the verge of taking, would very possibly have put things on a sound, free and easy basis, and would have restored him to wholesome soberness. But the fact was that Aschenbach did not want soberness. His intoxication was too precious. Who can explain the stamp and the nature of the artist? Who can understand this deep, instinctive welding of discipline and license? for to be unable to want wholesome soberness is license. Aschenbach was no longer given to self-criticism. His tastes, the mental calibre of his years, his self-respect, ripeness, and belated simplicity, made him unwilling to dismember his motives and to debate whether his impulses were the result of conscientiousness or of dissolution and weakness. He was embarrassed as he feared that some one or other, if only the guard on the beach, must have observed his pursuit and defeat. He was very much afraid of the ridiculous. Further, he joked with himself about his comically pious distress. Downed, he thought, downed like a rooster, with his wings hanging miserably in the battle. It really is a god who can, at one sight of his loveliness, break our courage this way, and force down our pride so thoroughly. He toyed and skirmished with his emotions, and was far too haughty to be afraid of them. He had already ceased thinking about the time when the vacation period, which he had fixed for himself, would expire. The thought of going home never even suggested itself. He had sent for an ample supply of money. His only concern was with the possible departure of the Polish family. By a casual questioning of the hotel barber, he had contrived to learn that these people had come here only a short time before his own arrival. The sun browned his face and hands, the invigorating salt breezes made him feel fresher. 
once he had been in the habit of expending on his work every bit of nourishment which food sleep or nature could provide him and similarly now he was generous and uneconomical letting pass off as elation and emotion all the daily strengthening derived from sun idleness and sea air his sleep was fitful the preciously uniform days were separated by short nights of happy unrest he did retire early for at nine o'clock when tadzio had disappeared from the scene the day seemed over but at the first grey of dawn he was awakened by a gently insistent shock he suddenly remembered his adventure he could no longer remain in bed he arose and clad lightly against the chill of morning he sat down by the open window to await the rising of the sun revived by his sleep he watched this miraculous event with reverence sky earth and sea still lay in glassy ghost-like twilight a dying star still floated in the emptiness of space but a breeze started up a winged message from habitations beyond reach telling that eros was rising beside her husband and that first sweet reddening in the farthest stretches of sky and sea took place by which the sentiency of creation is announced the goddess was approaching the seductress of youth who stole cleatus and cephalus and despite the envy of all the olympians enjoyed the love of handsome orion a strewing of roses began there on the edge of the world an unutterably pure glowing and blooming childish clouds lighted and shined through floated like busy little cupids in the rosy bluish mist purple fell upon the sea which seemed to be simmering and washing the colour towards him golden spears shot up into the sky from behind the splendour caught fire silently and with godlike power an intense flame of licking tongues broke out and with rattling hoofs the brothers sacred chargers mounted the horizon lighted by the god's brilliance he sat there keeping watch alone he closed his eyes letting this glory play against the lids past emotions precious early afflictions and yearnings which had been stifled by his rigorous programme of living were now returning in such strange new forms with an embarrassed astonished smile he recognised them he was thinking dreaming slowly his lips formed a name and still smiling with his face turned upwards hands folded in his lap he fell asleep again in his chair but the day which began with such fiery solemnity underwent a strange mythical transformation where did the breeze originate which suddenly began playing so gently and insinuatingly like some whispered suggestion about his ears and temples little white choppy clouds stood in the sky in scattered clumps like the pasturing herds of the gods a stronger wind arose and the steeds of poseidon came prancing up and along with them the steers which belonged to the blue-locked god bellowing and lowering their horns as they ran yet among the detritus of the more distant beach waves were hopping forward like agile goats he was caught in the enchantment of a sacredly distorted world full of panic life and he dreamed delicate legends often when the sun was sinking behind venice he would sit on a bench in the park observing tadzio 
who was dressed in a white suit with a colored sash and was playing ball on the smooth gravel and it was hyacinth that he seemed to be watching hyacinth who was to die because two gods loved him yes he felt zephyr's aching jealousy of the rival who forgot the oracle the bow and the lyre in order to play forever with this beauty he saw the discus guided by a pitiless envy strike the lovely head he too growing pale caught the drooping body and the flower sprung from this sweet blood bore the inscription of his unending grief nothing is more unusual and strained than the relationship between people who know each other only with their eyes who meet daily even hourly and yet are compelled by force of custom or their own caprices to say no word or make no move of acknowledgment but to maintain the appearance of an aloof unconcern there is a restlessness and a surcharged curiosity existing between them the hysteria of an unsatisfied unnaturally repressed desire for acquaintanceship and intercourse and especially there is a kind of tense respect for one person loves and honors another so long as he cannot judge him and desire is an evidence of incomplete knowledge some kind of familiarity had necessarily to form itself between aschenbach and young tazio and it gave the elderly man keen pleasure to see that his sympathies and interests were not left completely unanswered for example when the boy appeared on the beach in the morning and was going towards his family's bathing-house what had induced him never to use the boardwalk on the far side of it any more but to stroll along the front path through the sand past aschenbach's habitual place and often unnecessarily close to him almost touching his table or his chair even did the attraction the fascination of an overpowering emotion have such an effect upon the frail unthinking object of it aschenbach watched daily for tazio to approach and sometimes he acted as though he were occupied when this event was taking place and he let the boy pass unobserved but at other times he would look up and their glances met they were both in deep earnest when this occurred nothing in the elderly man's cultivated and dignified expression betrayed any inner movement but there was a searching look in tazio's eyes a thoughtful questioning he began to falter looked down then looked up again charmingly and when he had passed something in his bearing seemed to indicate that it was only his breeding which kept him from turning around once however one evening things turned out differently the polish children and their governess had been missing a dinner in the large hall aschenbach had noted this uneasily after the meal disturbed by their absence aschenbach was walking in evening dress and straw hat in front of the hotel at the foot of the terrace when suddenly he saw the nun-like sisters appear in the light of the arc-lamp accompanied by their governess with tazio a few steps behind evidently they were coming from the steamer pier after having dined for some reason in the city it must have been cool on the water tazio was wearing a dark blue sailor overcoat with gold buttons and on his head he had a cap to match the sun and sea air had not browned him his skin still had the same yellow marble colour as at first 
It even seemed paler today than usual, whether from the coolness or from the blanching moonlight of the lamps. His regular eyebrows showed up more sharply. The darkness of his eyes were deeper. It is hard to say how beautiful he was. And Aschenbach was distressed, as he had often been before, by the thought that words can only evaluate sensuous beauty, but not regive it. He had not been prepared for this rich spectacle. It came unhoped for. He had no time to entrench himself behind an expression of repose and dignity. Pleasure, surprise, admiration must have shown on his face as his eyes met those of the boy, and at this moment it happened that Tazio smiled, smiled to him, eloquently, familiarly, charmingly, without concealment. And during the smile his lips slowly opened. It was the smile of Narcissus, bent over the reflecting water, that deep, fascinated, magnetic smile with which he stretches out his arms to the image of his own beauty, a smile distorted ever so little, distorted at the hopelessness of his efforts to kiss the pure lips of the shadow. It was coquettish, inquisitive, and slightly tortured. It was infatuated and infatuating. He had received this smile, and he hurried away as though he carried a fatal gift. He was so broken up that he was compelled to escape the light of the terrace and the front garden. He hastily hunted out the darkness of the park in the rear. Strangely indignant and tender admonitions wrung themselves out of him. You dare not smile like that. Listen, no one dare smile like that to another. He threw himself down on a bench. In a frenzy he breathed the night smell of the vegetation, and leaning back, his arms loose, overwhelmed, with frequent chills running through him, he whispered the fixed formula of desire, impossible in this case, absurd, abject, ridiculous, and yet holy, even in this case venerable, I love you. End of chapter 4